2: The church has to be a place that says, "Okay, maybe we can come back with the burn comment. Maybe we can we can see the weaknesses of everybody else, and but that's not insight. Insight is the ability to see their glory, to, to refuse to deny the image of God that continues to exist, and that that is a, an extraordinarily profound discipline that we have to cultivate."
1: That was Greg Thompson to introduce us to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio, and this is the fourth episode in a series of seven where we're really trying to understand what are the six practices that have really shaped the church through the generations, throughout history, to respond to whatever cultural moment it's living through. We first brought this series to you about a year and a half ago, but it's so foundational to what Q is all about that we felt we should bring it to you again. Remember, the full series is up at the new Q Media Platform at qideas.org. And we do hope you subscribe to Q Media because there is a great library of resources there to do as we often say stay curious, think well, and advance good. Q Media has a huge library of Q Talks, podcasts, special series like this one, playlists around key topics, documentaries, and just a lot of curated content to help you and hopefully those with you who have a similar passion for impacting and creating culture to think through and use. We love the fact that, as a subscriber, there are questions and other tools to help you engage into discussions more deeply with others as you use the resources. To find out more about subscribing, either as an individual or a group, Just visit QIdeas.org. Now, let's get back to the series with Greg Thompson on the six practices of the church. And Gabe, at Q, you talk a lot about culture, how to engage it, how to be faithful. What does it mean to play out our faith in every area, believing that God wants to renew it, that he wants to redeem
0: it? It's in that same way of thinking that we're approaching this series to understand what does faithfulness look like? When you're engaging culture, and what does it always look like? We're not really learning anything new. We're not innovating some new trends or trying to say, hey, there's some new ways the church has never thought of before. In fact, we're doing the opposite, and we're saying, let's look back. Let's understand where we've come from. Let's understand our history. Let's understand who we are as the church in any age that we find ourselves in, and let's figure out how with love and with joy we can go forward and be a presence in the world." that really meets the absence that so many people are feeling. And so for some of you, this is going to be a new way of thinking. If you haven't listened to these first episodes, I encourage you to go back. Listen to the first three episodes that lead into this, because they really set the groundwork for the mentality, for the approach, for the way in which we want more and more Christians and the church to really understand our calling in the world today. And so today we're going to focus in on the third practice. And, and this practice is the practice of insisting on human dignity. It's understanding that we must celebrate the image of God identity that every person is given. They're born with this. And when we understand that every person is made in the image of God, it radically shapes the way we approach those in which we might disagree with, those who are different than us, those who we might consider the other. And we understand that the preeminent first focus for the Christian is that the dignity of every human being matters and that we should be the first to show up, to defend that, to fight for that, to recognize that and to encourage others around us to live in such a way that lifts that up. And so listen now as Greg Thompson continues this talk and starts to explore, what does it look like for us to really understand our identity and who we are?
2: Who are we? The third question is, who are we? And this is a question about identity, about what it means uh, both for us and for our neighbors to be to be human beings. Now, it is very important that we answer this question carefully, and that we try to understand who we are and who our neighbors are, because there is so much confusion. Because human identity in our own time is a deeply contradictory experience. You know, on the one hand, ours is an age that, in, in very in very important ways, prioritizes human dignity in part due to to Christian influence, in part due to enlightenment influences, in part in response to the great tragedies of the 20th century. We are an age that believes deeply in human dignity. It is the foundation of our political systems. And as a result, we devote an enormous amount in the West, an enormous amount of intellectual and moral, economic, political energy to to establishing and guarding human dignity. And yet on the other hand, our age is an age that practices human diminishment. Every day, in so many ways, in our personal practices and our public institutions, we diminish human beings. We limit their minds. We shame their hearts. We we exploit and consume their bodies. We destroy their possibilities. All of us see it. All of us see it. Ours is an age in which dignity is only selectively applied. And this is true in the church. This is true in the church. We insist on dignity, and yet we also practice human diminishment. Brothers and sisters, this cannot be. Our age needs the presence of a community with a deeply grounded account of human identity, a community that knows who we are and that has the ability to know who other people are to see it. So who are we? First, we are creatures of glory. We're creatures made in the image of God, crowned with this unspeakable and ineradicable glory. A glory that's seen in the mystery of our faces. It's seen in the grace of our bodies and the creativity of our minds and our work. And we, we are wreathed in light. We are people of dignity. And that dignity, it's important to understand, is anchored not in political agreement nor in mere sentiment, but in the very image of God. And the Christian church has to be a community that insists on the, on the dignity of every human being. Secondly, we are creatures of shame. We are creatures of shame. We're creatures that are broken by sin, estranged from our life with God. We're alienated from our own selves. We're in broken relationships with other peoples. We're estranged from the world. And because of this, the Christian church must remember that we have to renounce self-righteousness because we are all people of shame. We have to be honest about our shame and incredibly gentle with the shame of other people. And lastly, we are creatures of hope. We are creatures of hope. We're creatures who, because of the timeless love of God, believe that in Jesus Christ, we can be made new. That our minds can, in fact, be renewed and that our loves can be reordered. That our habits can be redirected. We believe that our bodies can be resurrected from the dead. And because of this, the Christian church must never, ever give up hope on any human being. And so ours is an age that's crying out for a coherent account of identity. And part of what will mean to be a faithful presence within it is to understand that account, that we are creatures of glory and of shame and of hope because of God.
0: Greg, here we get into this greater discussion about what does it mean to be made in the image of God? You you use interesting language here. You use the word creatures, you know, as you describe us versus people, like people aren't used to hearing that kind of language.
2: Why do you use that? Well, the language of creatures directly related to creation for me. And I mean, not just for me, that's where the word comes from. Uh, and, and I think that's important because it, it suggests what I believe is in fact true, that human beings, that our lives are the products of a, of a of an active and loving will that brought us into being. And that means that we're not just um, accidents, nor can we be just discarded, but we have in fact been created and made and, and fashioned, and that's really important. Well, and I think
0: the discussion we're about to have really deals with the question of what does it mean to be human? and. For some people, it can sound almost like we're having a discussion about humanism to talk about all the good that it means to be a human and God's design for human beings to flourish, even if they don't believe in Him. I mean, this is one of those great opportunities for contradiction where we do believe that the image of God's in every person, even if they don't recognize it as such. And yet, for many Christians, that's a new thought to say, oh, the image of God exists in somebody even if they haven't accepted, you know, in our personal salvation narrative, they haven't accepted mm-hmm. Jesus into their heart. Um, have you dealt with that in your conversations with new believers or Christians who for the first time encounter that language of the image of God in every human being?
2: Yeah, I think that that all of us, uh, Christian and not Christian, it's hard for us to imagine that people that are different than we are have the kind of dignity that we want ourselves to have. And so I think it's a Christian problem. I also think it's a... a a broadly human problem, and one of the most helpful things for me in my own life as somebody that didn't always recognize the image of God in myself or in other people is that that text where the Lord tells us that God sends rain on the righteous and the wicked alike, that there's a sense in which God beholds his creatures and loves them, and, and that if God has the ability to honor and to see and actually to steward the dignity of people that are even opposed to him... Uh that, that has to be foundational for how we interact with one another. And so much of our
0: culture today, though, has seemed to resort to dehumanization. I mean, that's the almost the main theme as you think about our political seasons, as we think about how news is treated, as we think about just even social media and the way in which people are interacting with one another. There's a real forgetfulness about the image of God, and technology somehow breathes this maybe a little bit more because you can now do this where you're not in the same space, Right. with an embodied human being. Right. Do you think that's contributing to to this as well?
2: Well, yes. I think it's new. I also think it's old. I mean I think the dehumanization of other people is unfortunately maybe the original American pastime You know, where we, we started off dehumanizing others, African-Americans. And we, we do it in our political system. We do it in our sermons. We do it in our commercials. We do it in the jokes that we tell, in the movies that we watch. I mean, it really is. It really is sort of the sport du jour, which is where can we watch someone else? Where can we watch someone be exploited or harmed or uh, you know killed or something by someone else? The, the, and the the implications of that of a of a community or of a civilization who has as one of its primary forms of entertainment the destruction of human beings is, yeah. is a terrible, terrible thing.
0: I, uh, the other night, um, not to throw one of my kids under the bus, but we were having a family conversation and you know it came up from one of my children that they were researching on the internet how to burn other kids and and they were using the language burn because that's what they do to one another they burn one another with a new comment a way to cut them down and you yeah. know it's such a middle school yeah. thing to think about but it comes out of this root of I want to defend myself, man. I don't, I don't like it, what it feels like when somebody dehumanizes me and embarrasses me and shames me in front of somebody else. And the natural response is I've got to defend myself. And we begin this cycle against one another as human beings that's really difficult to stop and ultimately leads to the degradation of other human beings and ultimately can lead towards violence. I mean that's the pattern we've seen throughout history if we don't get this right.
2: Well, I think that's right. You know, and I, I have junior hires too and we do hear the ooh burn. You know, <laughs> we hear that in our house. I think that, that part of the work has been to say, okay, think about that. You're talking about burning another person. <laughs> like what's involved in that here? Let's think about what that means. And it's and and honestly, Gabe, it's not it's not always just self defensive. It is that you can actually get a form of gratification and even social prestige. Out of dominating somebody that hasn't done anything wrong to you. I mean, this is sort of the essence of junior high, right? And I think that the, um, that's a learned behavior. The church has to be a place that says, "Okay, maybe we can come back with the burn comment. Maybe we can we can see the weaknesses of everybody else, and but that's not insight. Insight is the ability to see their glory, to to refuse to deny the image of God that continues to exist, and that that is a an extraordinarily profound discipline that we have to cultivate. You mentioned in in this segment of the talk
0: the idea of self-righteousness, how that's become something pretty prevalent for the church. And, and I know that came out in the research uh, that we did a decade ago uh, that came out in the book Un-Christian with David Kenneman, where the general insight from the non-Christian thinking about their experience with Christians in the church was that they are self-righteous, that the church has become full of themselves judging those who are different than them, looking down on them usually focusing in, and and judgment was another one of those themes, usually focusing in on something that they see wrong with the other and emphasizing that. What I hear you saying is what we're supposed to do is see the potential in the other human being. We're supposed to see all that God could see in all their future glory, and we're to be those who are encouraging that, empowering that, serving them in some way to see that come about in their life, and that's a new thought for a lot of Christians.
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, I'd probably say two things about it. One it's not just seeing the potential, it's seeing the the real now, um, because we don't just look at people in terms of a, a glory deficit, right we We see that they are now endowed with a certain kind of glory, and their whole being bears witness to it, even if they don't know it. so I think that's one part, yeah, but there's this sense of saying i'm going to, I, I must behold the the glory that God himself has put in you, but then there's this other part which relates to self righteousness i think if uh, I think it's right to see. Things that are broken in other people, I think it 's right to see things that are wrong, but you, you have to do that from a recognition that you yourself are broken, that you yourself uh, have not somehow escaped from the fires of corruption that 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 it 's not just our glory that binds us to our neighbors it 's also our shame and that 's a really important thing that 's something that we share with them. That just as they are ashamed of their thoughts and of the things that they've done and of their pride and of their adultery, so we ourselves have this. And and there's a lot of a lot of the blindness that we have is not just the inability to see glory, but the unwillingness to see through the lie through the the kind of lens of our own of our own sin and our own hurt.
0: Well, as we talk about the idea of dehumanization and moving towards Christians should be the ones who are bringing dignity to other human beings, I see that as a bright spot for the church today. There's plenty of people. I think of Gary Haugen and International Justice Mission. I think of people who are working tirelessly you know, to end human trafficking and those who are working hard to bring back education into our cities and into schools and and to do it in creative and new ways. These are some of the ways in which Christians are contributing to this narrative that uh, more of us should get
2: on board with. I think that's been historically one of our contributions, and I think it's it's a way that if we can um, devote ourselves to it and simply encourage one another in this, we can have a profound effect because this is a profoundly dehumanizing culture. And there are there are men and women and children every day in every city in this country and around the world who are Christians who are seeking to honor the dignity of other people, whether it's sharing their lunch or whether it's starting schools or letting someone get in front of you in line – all, there are all kinds of ways that we can do that, and I think we just have to cultivate that practice.
0: Yeah, there's simple things. I mean it's, it could be as simple as putting your phone down and look at somebody in the eye, having coffee with them and actually talking to them and humanizing them and being embodied and not being – Sort of half present in our experiences with people, but I think about it at a macro level right now. And in, in American culture, a lot of Western cultures right now, there seems to be fears of of people who might have other ethnicities or other faiths. I think of the Muslim culture and how should Protestant and Catholic Christians think about their Muslim neighbor? You know, do we get a pass to say, "Hey, they believe something different"? We're fearful of them, and therefore. we're not supposed to promote their human dignity or does the Christian faith call us to do something more than that?
2: If we are Christians, that means that we believe that Christ loved us while we were yet his enemies. And I see no, no way that we either can or should try to avoid that reality in our social existence with one another. I cannot deny the reality of God's life and his dignity, um, the way that he 's confirmed dignity on my neighbors who profoundly disagree with me to do so is a form of willed blindness on my part, uh, so yeah, I think we have to be able to be a people that say i 'm going to begin with glory that 's where we begin, and then we can see shame in ourselves and in our neighbors, and then we have to move for the possibility of hope that people can in fact be made new, not in the way that we think they should in the way that God himself thinks that they should and is revealed in his word and we are looking for god to make things new and make people new and i think that that means that we have a disposition of hope for other people all the time
0: yeah and you you really conclude this portion of the talk talking about not giving up hope on any human being that nobody's outside the realm of resurrection of the image of god really shining through in their life and their glory emanating for the whole world to experience and to see uh there's certain areas of our society where people have given up hope uh where You know, we almost have entire systems built around keeping people from maybe experiencing the fullness of what it might mean to be a human being. Is the job of the Christian to go fight that as unjust and to be those who are leading the way forward to push back anything that would contain somebody from the fullest expression of who God's made them to be?
2: I think that's right. And I think we have to do that for ourselves. I think a lot of us don't have hope for ourselves. Uh, I think that we don't have hope for our neighbors, and I think that people that are our enemies that we fear it's it's easy to not have hope for them and I think this is just so important <laughs> remember that christ's life was fundamentally an act of hope for his enemies, love for his enemies because he knew that he himself had the power to make them new and I see no way that we can not follow him. You know we have to say uh, I can see. Possibilities, and even if there aren't, even if I can't see them, they are there because Christ has risen. And as part of the challenge for us to see this
0: possibility for other people, the idea of shame that you mentioned—that we have a hard time, even for ourselves, imagining that there's more that we can get out from underneath the shame that we're carrying in our own lives—you know—is that unique to this moment in time that people feel more and more shame, or do you? imagine historically this has always been the challenge of the human heart.
2: Yeah, I don't know I don't know how to speak historically or even in contemporary terms uh, across cultures. I do think that shame is profound for us right now. I think we live in a culture uh, of shame where people shame each other ritually in in public. And so I do think that that's part of it. We can't imagine the possibilities for other people. But I also think that there's an equal danger which is not shame but pride that sometimes we have a vision of what somebody could be, and that's what we think God's intention is. And in fact, we have to learn that it's, it's God that makes it grow, as Paul says. You know, like, He is the one that's going to bring it to full flower. And a lot of this, a lot of seeing the glory in other people is discovery. It's seeing what has, what is God doing? Where is Christ active? What is he making possible in them? Not prescribing that on the front end, but there is the watchfulness. You know, there's... This, the, the story where Jesus says, you know, every the farmer plants and he waters uh, day after day and he goes to sleep and knows not how it grows. But the crop comes up because that's what God is doing. And I think we really need to have that disposition. We know that glory is there. We know that there are weeds that threaten to choke it out. But we also believe that Christ is active, this, this new gardener who is making all things new.
0: This third practice of insisting on human dignity and celebrating this image of God identity that's in every human being, you know, this is one of the opportunities for the church. It's something that throughout history, the church has done well, Um, and, and there's almost no time or no age where we haven't seen this bubbling out of the Christian community and bringing hope to so many, because it does stand for what's right. It does stand for what's just. It doesn't mind standing in the face of the threat, in the face of the enemy of the image of God in other people, and it resists that. And so there's going to be so many opportunities in the years ahead for Christians to practice this, to play this out. But it begins by seeing the other as somebody made in the image of God and not letting that escape us in the midst of a culture that does enjoy shaming one another, does enjoy labeling people and writing them off, and in many cases trying to prevent the world from seeing the potential that they have. And so as we continue this conversation Invite your friends as we go into the next episode and join us for the next episode where we're going to move into the final three practices and discuss what does this look like for us as the church, for us as Christian leaders, to be engaging the world, to be engaging it with hopefulness, with joy, and to be bringing something to the world that maybe it hasn't experienced from the church in recent years. And in doing so, ensure that we're being faithful in the cultural moment in which we live.
1: Thanks again for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons for this week. Next week, we'll continue the series about the six practices of the church with Greg Thompson. We still have a few moments, so I want to invite you to be part, maybe a major part, of bringing the Q experience to your community. On Thursday, October 24th, Q Ideas will again be presenting Q Commons. It's a special one-night event held in cities throughout the U.S. and even the world. It features some great national speakers. One this year is New York Times bestselling author and thought leader, Malcolm Gladwell. He's the author of books like The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, What the Dog Saw, and David and Goliath. You've been named one of the 100 most influential people by Time magazine and one of the foreign policy's top global thinkers. Q Commons also features great local speakers, people working for the common good in their communities. The theme for this year's Q Commons is create a better future. In a divided world where there are plenty of problems to solve, what does it look like to offer hope, to gather, to dream, to discuss, and to think well about the future? To be the kind of people who bring tangible solutions to our cities, to advance the common good. We're stronger together than we are apart, and it's time to work together and imagine what might be. We're still looking for local leaders to bring the Q Commons to their communities, and maybe you're thinking it would be great to do it in yours. Well, let me encourage you to go to QCommons.com, scroll down, and fill out the form Interested in Hosting. Now, during the summer, it's a great time to explore the possibilities of making Q Commons happen in your community. Uh, Maybe you're thinking you're not sure how to put together such an event. Still, fill out the form, and we'll contact you about what it takes to make it happen. We can even schedule a call with a Q Team member who can help you explore what it means and how you can host the event on October 25th in your city. So, let's be people to encourage the good, clarify the confused, and create what's missing. Let's convene, collaborate, and bring change for the common good of our communities. Again, visit QCommons.com to learn more about hosting a Q Commons event this fall.
0: If you want to learn more, go to QIdeas.org slash six practices where you can watch these portions of the talk online and you can invite your friends to join us, catch up on this conversation and engage with us as we continue this conversation in the episodes ahead.